Good morning, Hope Church. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in the book of Matthew today. We're going to start a new series studying the person of Jesus, asking the question, who is the real Jesus? If you've ever heard that Tina Turner song, What's Love Got to Do With It? You heard that song? I'm having a hard time now. It's hard to know. Once upon a time, there were decades, and people that were young knew about the modern stuff and not the old stuff. But now, everybody just streams everything. So you kind of don't really know what people do and don't know. I don't know much past, like, you know, 2005. But a lot of people who are born later know not only the new and cool stuff, but the old stuff, too. Anyway, Tina Turner once sang the song, What's Love Got to Do With It? Now, I don't know what all's going on with that song. If you guys are Tina fans, I know she had some stuff in her life with Ike and, you know, some hard stuff. So I don't want to hold her up and, like, make fun or anything. But that question, just as a question, what's love got to do with it? That's a hard question to answer. I mean, I think a lot of us put love in the center of everything that goes on in our lives. But I don't know, gun to your head, how you would even define the word. Have you thought about that? What is love? How does it work? What are the rules? How do you you increase it? Should you increase it? Is it something increasable? If it was a subject, how do you study it? Some people seem to just get it. They have really lovely relationships, and they sort of build those relationships well. And then all of a sudden, they don't. Everything seems to crack. Some people have a really difficult time when it comes to connecting with other people. And yet, over time, they seem to have a couple of really stable relationships that you get kind of impressed with. What is love? I think one of the unique things about Christianity, as it breaks into the sort of world of humanity, uh, as it gets into the, the scene... There's a point at which there was not Christianity, and then Christianity. There's Judaism, and then this person of Jesus. But this person of Jesus fulfills Judaism in such a way that now, looking back, we see all of this continuity. But in his life, in his ministry, and the people that began to follow him, there's a break. There's a newness that's there. And as he lives, what, what Christianity does to human history is it reframes that question of what is love, and it tells you who is love. And nobody has sort of more definitions about him than Jesus. And I don't know of anybody, any world figure that should just have one. We have incredible first-generation documents about this guy. And yet, man, I I think that we as people are just not real objective about who this Jesus is. Not only should he be attractive as one who presents this, this experience of love, he also, if you actually read about him, confronts you constantly with this expectation of authority. Jesus doesn't just come and make you feel better about yourself. Jesus comes and he is Lord. This this Jewish guy, 2,000 years ago, born in the boonies of the Roman Empire, does a three-year ministry. At the end of that three-year ministry, in the middle of nowhere, is executed by that Roman Empire. 
He then has followers who claim that he rose from the grave and then they preach a message that they say is from him. Leads to their deaths. They're convinced. They, they preach this message of sin and judgment, but also of grace and forgiveness that just won. That message, just won. Something like 200 years later, the whole of the Roman Empire was declared by that emperor to be Christian. 2,000 years later, here we are talking about him, defined by him. Who was he? I, I think many of us already have an answer to that. But if you go back to the text, if you go back to Matthew, which is what we're going to be studying, you're getting into something written by one of his followers, considered to be written even by people who don't necessarily believe that Christianity is true, just scholars of the era, considered to be written before A.D. 90. That means this Matthew guy sees Jesus. He has a ministry, he has a life. He cooks his stuff up about 50, 60 years later, he writes this down. Maybe even been earlier. It could have been in the 60s. But people that disagree with who Jesus was still say that it was been written before AD 90. He cooks this stuff up and he writes it out. And what he writes, if you actually study it, is so compelling that my hope with this series is for us to just see the guy. Hey, the point of this series is not to crack a whip over you and fix some aspect of Hope Church institutionally or members of Hope Church individually. The purpose of this series is just to hold up the person of Jesus and see if he draws all people to himself. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 8 is the first part of Matthew after what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is probably the most famous chunk of Jesus' teaching. And yet, right after the Sermon on the Mount, we get more of Jesus' ministry, more of Jesus' life. We're going to reflect on Matthew chapter 8 and 9 in this series, looking back with the, Lord, uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount kind of reflecting on. But this massive sermon of Jesus', the Sermon on the Mount, he preaches it, and the very end of Matthew chapter 7, you get this review of his sermon. And when Jesus finished saying these things... The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Who is the real Jesus? He's a boss. He's a king. The number one thing you need to see about Jesus when he comes around and he's healing people and he's being real sweet, but he has authority. And when he speaks, the people who are in the room or on the mountain, they receive one fact. And they get a lot of information, but they perceive one thing about this Jesus. They're astounded that he preaches with such authority. He's a king. And yet... At the end of this passage, what he does with that authority shows you a mind-bending love. At the very end of the, the section of Matthew that we're going to be in today, in verses 16 and 17 of Matthew 8, that evening they, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses 
and bore our diseases. Throughout human history, there have been people with power. There have been people with authority, people with great energy, intelligence, force of will, right place, right time. You, know, you think about Alexander the Great, Philip the Macedonian had built this beautiful army. It's a well-oiled machine. You put a little military genius in the middle of it, like Alexander the Great, and all of a sudden, boom, you get this massive empire. These technological advances, these things that happen, and the wrong thing the wrong time, or the right thing in the right time, however you kind of look at it, we've seen powerful people throughout history. But look at what the authoritative King Jesus does with his authority. He, he lays it down and shows love. He uses all of that grand power and authority to take our illnesses and bear our diseases. This Jesus is a king and, to answer the question that we started the sermon with, he is love. The, the blending of those two just explosive ingredients is the unique person of Christ. There's three stories we're going to look at today, and each of these three stories blends those two things in ways that are totally unexpected. But you got to see it. you got to see it if you're going to understand who this guy is. He's not just wise. There's wise people. I get that. But he's not just wise. He's turning a corner that wisdom never saw coming, blending these two things together. Let's see how he is both a king and... Love, how he is bringing about in his own ministry what he began that Sermon on the Mount with by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. How does he do this? He is king and love. Let's look. Matthew, as he's organizing the stories within his gospel that he's going to tell you in order to show you who Jesus is, he organizes them more thematically than chronologically. So when you're comparing the different gospels, don't get fussy. Just look at the themes that he's pursuing in organizing these different pericopes. There's a great Bible scholar word if you ever want to use it. I don't know when you would or how you would, but pericope. It means a segment of Scripture. As he puts these different segments together, he's doing so thematically. So we're going to compare and look. What are the themes that are building in the stories that Matthew puts one right next to another? In Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 1, we have the Sermon on the Mount. And then verse 1, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. He's, he's standing with influence. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Things are going great. He's starting to get influence. He's cool. And instead of impressive, wealthy, important people, a leper comes and kneels before him and says, he puts up this petition, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. There's elements all over this. One, this guy shows up with the desperation necessary for encountering Jesus. Desperation. He recognizes that Jesus has authority. He recognizes that he needs something that this Jesus who is above him can give. 
To be a leper, we've talked about this a lot, but to be a leper, it, was, it stunk because you have leprosy. But it also stunk if you were a Jewish person because it meant that you were ceremonially unclean. You had to get away from everybody else. You're isolated. You're not just isolated physically, like, oh, you know, quarantine. You're isolated spiritually. Ha! Ah, you're unclean. You're seen as one that you can't be with now. This leper comes and he kneels before Jesus in desperation and admits Jesus' authority, saying, if you will, you can make me clean. This guy gets that Jesus is a king. And intuitively, out of desperation, he also somehow gets that Jesus shows love. I mean, just think about that. The powerful people in the world, you don't show them your weakness. You show them your, your strength. You hope that they're hiring. But Jesus, this, this leper comes and he kneels before him and just says, I got nothing. I just know that if you will, I don't know why you would. I got nothing to give you. But if you will, you can make me clean. Maybe he heard. Maybe he heard some of these beatitudes, the poor in spirit, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he just says, let's see. <laughs> I got nothing. I'm poor in spirit. So what about the kingdom? Please. And Jesus, having that authority, we'll see in a minute. He could have healed this guy any way he wanted to. He could have spoken a word as he's about to, to heal from a distance, which, you know, if you're in the healing game, maybe do it from a distance with lepers. But he doesn't. He could have raised an eyebrow. He could have done a wink or a nose twitch from Bewitched. If you remember Tina Turner, maybe you remember Bewitched. She remember she'd go like, ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a. And I don't know how they found a pretty actress lady who also could do a thing with her nose. I don't know how she did it. And then the magic would happen, right? Or the genie, you know, would do the thing. And then he could have waggled his fingers or done anything he wanted. But he intentionally reaches out and touches the one you can't touch. The one you shouldn't touch, you're going to get leprosy. But the one that you can't touch, what's he doing? <laughs> See, Jesus, as he is preaching in his Sermon on the Mount, makes it clear that he has not come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill the law. That not a jot or tittle of the law is going to pass away. He is coming with a derived authority. What he is doing as he kind of breaks the law here, is actually fulfilling the law. He's showing how the whole of the sacrificial system is going to finally find its fulfillment in Jesus. As he reaches out, and instead of unclean making clean unclean, clean makes unclean clean. He heals the guy, but he specifically does it with a touch. I think we all get this. It used to be that the unclean would make the clean unclean. Do you ever think, I'm just so scared to look up the stats. Do you ever think when you go through a fast food place, like what are the chances that this food is like not spit in? Ugh. Do you ever think about it? I do. I'm 36. I've been to a fast food place a lot. I don't know. It's hard to do the math on how many times a month. More than Rachel knows about. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what are the stats? You start going year on year, how many is that? Am I really O for like 30,000 opportunities for somebody to spit in my food? 
Probably not. The, the math is I probably have eaten some spit. But I'll still eat and enjoy my fast food because I don't know. But if I knew, could you ever eat that burger? If you saw it, if the guy made eye contact and then did it, wrapped it up and handed it to you through the window, could you do it? Unclean has made clean as fast food, you know, but clean, unclean, inedible. But when Christ touched the unclean, he made the unclean clean. And you see this. This is kingship and love coming together. This is what we're saying at the end here when he says that he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Matthew, as he goes through, quotes from Isaiah 53 in the whole of the book of Matthew. He quotes from the book of Isaiah chapter 53 repeatedly. Because he's trying to help you see how the suffering servant, that is this capstone character in the book of Isaiah, is Jesus. But the way that this king does what he does is not to just come in and kill all the evildoers and bless and reward all the good people. Because we're all lepers. That's the point that's being made throughout this book over and over and over again, is that we're all far from God. The wise ones are the ones who realize their desperation before a holy God. It's the rest of us who need something, as we'll see in just a second. The way that Jesus comes to heal us is not just to speak a word. It's not just to take these things away. It's to take them upon himself. You know, he's not just there to fix leprosy. He's only doing his ministry for three years in a small geographic area. He's not eradicating leprosy from the world. He's preaching something. He's showing something. Let's look at the next story. It says in verses 5 and 6, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, that means a leader within the Roman military, came forward to Jesus appealing to him. So we have another person coming and appealing to Jesus and another person who is ceremonially unclean. This is a Gentile. This is somebody who you can't go and eat with because you're not sure that their house has been taken care of the way that cleanliness laws demand. You don't really even want to mess with it if you're a Jewish clean person. But the centurion comes forward and appeals to Jesus, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home and suffering terribly. What's the appeal here? Is the appeal that then the might of the Roman uh, army machine, the military machine, is now going to be put at the disposal of Jesus? Is the promise that this centurion is now going to donate handsomely to the cause of Christ? Or is the appeal the desperate situation of the servant? He comes and just appeals to love. And how does Jesus respond? I'll come and heal him. I know I'm not, I'm not even going to go into your house or how, how, how this is going to create all kinds of problems for me, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to come and heal him. It's just what love does. It's what Jesus does. And the centurion replies, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So this is an even Gentile, you know, cleanliness, Jewish laws thing. He's just saying, oh, no, no. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. 
And when I say to one, go, he goes. And to another, come, he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. He really gets it. He gets both sides of this. I don't know how. I don't know how a centurion and some like dirty leper out in the middle of nowhere get who Jesus is, but they get it. They get that he has authority, that he can do this stuff. That's what this guy gets. This guy is very acquainted with authority in his real life, and he is very acquainted somehow with the fact of Christ's authority. But he gets it. And he understands that this Christ is so loving that he would have a concern for a Gentile military leader's servant's illness. What? I mean, again, you just don't, you don't let yourself see how crazy this is because it's Jesus, of course. Of course. Really? How many people in authority in your life do you go to on your knees trusting in their love and capacity? You have people in your life with capacity, and you have people in your life with love. How often do those things go together? It's fantastic when they do, but infrequent. At the highest levels, at, at, at the whole of existence, why would, he ex- would we expect God to be that way? And yet, He is. This guy gets it. And Jesus, when He hears this guy's faith marvels and says to those around him, truly I tell you, no one in Israel, nowhere with no one in Israel have I found such faith. You Israelites, you people that have been around this stuff, don't get it. But the people that are all the way out on the margins, man, they, they get it. I, I haven't found this kind of faith with the people that are close here. And I tell you, many will come when he talks about will come in the same way, he's talking about the thing that is to come, the kingdom of heaven, the, the revelation, the point at which all of this is done and God comes back and makes everything new. He says, in that day, many are going to come from the east and from the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom meaning the genetic kin of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or those who have heard the teaching of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have heard the teaching of Jesus and yet just sort of rejected it. Rejected it fully or rejected it slowly, apathetically. Be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is now getting into something hard, but I think helpful. I mean, there may be a little apathy in your heart as I start saying, who is the real Jesus? And you're like, if I know anything, (laughs) Buster, I know who Jesus is. Sky's blue and Jesus is good. You know, like, what, what are we talking about? You have to see the danger you're in. You have to see the danger that the people that are close are the ones that don't seem to get it. And the people that you almost couldn't think of somebody further, they show up and they have total apprehension of Jesus' authority and of his capacity for mercy. <laughs> The ones that are close, they don't seem to get it at all. When you ask the question, who is Jesus, and you're somebody who's investigating truly, 
You're asking it for the first time or you're asking it again. You have this idea. You think you know who Jesus is, but you're evaluating maybe from a different angle. Who is Jesus? You are not objective when you ask that question. It should be easier for us to get to it, but we kind of don't want to. You're trying to convince somebody of something they don't want to hear. Because if Jesus is going to be Jesus, then you have to bend the knee to him. If Jesus is going to be Jesus, then you have to react like the leper and the centurion. You don't get to walk up and high five and just belong with him. You have to come on bended knee. Talked about powerful people. You don't show them your weakness. You come and you want to get hired. You know, you try and polish up the resume and hide all the other stuff. How many of us are doing that with Christ? You don't want Jesus to have the authority that he has, and you certainly don't want him to show so much grace because you'd really like to be impressive to him and maybe eventually even kind of either surpass him or at least not have to talk to him too much. You know, there's temptation to sin that comes when you're depressed. There's temptation to sin that comes when things are going really badly. But there's a lot of temptation to sin that comes when things are going great. There's a Flannery O'Connor character that talks about this, where it seems that guy intuitively, he seemed to know that the way to get away from Jesus wasn't sin, it was righteousness. That if you did good works, then maybe you wouldn't have to mess with him too much. You could kind of get away and do your own thing. That's not possible if Jesus is a king. If he's a king, then you're going to have to embrace that desperation. This guy, Brian Chappell, I've been reading and just loving. He says, our God is not moved by the deeds that we trophy, but by the desperation that we acknowledge as our own. God's heart is moved. Not only protest our innocence by pointing to our inadequate good works, nor when we promise that we will do better in the future. Though there is no reason for God to love us, yet he This is the nature of grace that we must treasure to know the joy that God wants for our lives. As we go through this, you got to ask this question. Last story, 14 to 17. We've read it a couple of times already almost, but when Jesus entered Peter's house, so they're done with that day. You know, again, this is organized thematically more than like chronologically, but you see there's a little bit of that. You know, he comes down from the mountain and there's the... Uh, leper, and then there's the centurion, and now they're entering into Peter's house, and he sees Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. What's he do? He just healed a guy from a distance with a word, but what does he do? He touches her hand, and the fever leaves her, and she rises up and begins to serve him. Why did he touch her? That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. When Jesus touched that guy, he doesn't get leprosy. We get that. There's infectious diseases. When he touched the mother-in-law's hand, he doesn't get a fever. So what does it mean when it's saying that he bore our illnesses and our diseases? It's pointing forward to what Jesus has come to do. 
that he has come to receive those that are far from God and make a way for them to come near to God again. And the way that he does it, because of his authority, meaning that he has the ability, and because of his love, meaning he has the willingness, is that he takes our sin upon himself. We are not a church that believes that people who are physically disabled in some way or experiencing pain and suffering physically are people that need to repent of their sin. We believe everybody needs to repent of their sin, and it's a fallen world because of sin, which leads to dot, 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 the things that are going on in people's hearts and lives, and there's all this physical pain and suffering. But what Jesus is saying is that physical pain and suffering is a result of, as you draw the things back, as you draw the curtain back, to the sin and the disobedience that we had against God. So if God is going to make a way for us to be cleansed, forgiven, those things have to get taken care of. Well, how can they? We need a substitute. We need somebody innocent to take those things upon himself. That is the gospel. That's what he does by going to the cross. We're going to talk about it this whole series. And that is what you need. It's hard to want to bend the knee to somebody else, but you need that authority. You need somebody else that will wear the crown big enough to take care of the massive problems in your life. You want to wear that crown. Well, if you want to be the boss, you got to pay the cost. If you're going to wear that crown, you've got to be able to take care of everything in your world. Those that were close, those that are the sons of Abraham that he's saying are going to get thrown out into the outer darkness, they're the ones who thought they could wear that crown. They saw their problems as small and their power as great. And the ones coming from the east and the west, limping in and on the wheelchairs, are the ones that are the lepers and the centurions that are far from God, who aren't far from God at all who are the ones who can actually see who he is in all of his authority and all of his love. They're the ones with sight. They're the ones we need to bow down to and learn from. Listen, that authority is the one who can actually fix your problems. And that love is the one who actually sees your problems. He looks down at the leper and cares enough to put his hand on that dirty head to put his hand into your dirty life. You may say, everything's great. I don't, I don't have problems that require a Jesus. Well, I disagree. And so does he. It's <laughs> the point of all of this teaching. If you're willing, if something today was encouraging or intriguing, come back. This won't be a super long series. Come back and just study a couple of chapters of Matthew and ask from this first-person perspective, a guy who sat there and watched it happen. Who is this Jesus? 